Welcome to 1514, a podcast of the Biblical Counseling Coalition. Our goal is to help Christians understand the truth of Romans 15:14 that they are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to counsel one another. I'm one of your hosts, Curtis Solomon. And I'm Lincoln Liu, your other host. Be sure to check out other resources from the BCC at biblicalcc.org. Thank you for joining us for this episode of 1514. It is a delight to have you as part of our audience. Today's episode is an interview that I did with Christine Chapel. Christine hosts the Hope and Help podcast for the Institute for Biblical Counseling and Discipleship, as well as doing counseling and writing on her own blog and lots of other things. Today, we are talking about her newest book, Midnight Mercies, Walking with God Through Depression in Motherhood. And I was really excited about this resource. I think a lot of people, when they first hear the title, title, Think Postpartum Depression. And while we definitely do recognize that, and I think that Christine's book would be very helpful to somebody walking through that, uh, she is highlighting a lot of different challenges that moms face throughout the life of motherhood, not just in, in the initial phases of postpartum depression. And her her insights are both personal as well as very biblical, and she's writing from a heart and a place of compassion and understanding to women who are just struggling with the normal things of life that come up, uh, but that often lead us down the dark road of depression. So, I was really encouraged by our conversation, really encouraged by the book, and I definitely encourage you to check it out. Right now, we're in the middle of our One Person a Week campaign, where we are asking all friends of the BCC to reach out to one person a week and invite them to support the ministry of the BCC. Since you're a 1514 podcast listener, I encourage you to reach reach out and share with somebody your favorite episode of 1514. Maybe tell somebody about 1514 who doesn't know about it and encourage them to support the work so that we can continue to create great resources like this one and tell you about other resources that people are creating uh, through this avenue of the ministry of the Biblical Counseling Coalition. Thanks again so much for listening. This episode is brought to you in part by the new MDiv from the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. The strongest MDiv just got stronger. Southern Seminary introduced a new Master of Divinity degree in order to train, educate, and prepare students for a lifetime of faithfulness with even greater effectiveness. The benefits to students are greater personalization, increased specialization, and the opportunity to earn more credentials in an efficient amount of time. MDiv students who attend classes on Southern's campus pay for only their first nine hours each semester and take one or two additional courses for free. That reduces the cost of the Southern Seminary MDiv by thousands of dollars. Discover how you can benefit from the new Southern MDiv that is simplified, personalized, and incentivized at sbts.edu slash newmdiv. Christine Chapel, thanks so much for being with us on 1514 today. Could you introduce yourself to our audience? Hey, Curtis. Yeah, I'm glad to be back on the show and to chat. I, uh, yeah, my name is Christine Chapel. I am a wife, actually been married to Brett now for 20 years uh, this, this month in October. And I have three kids. I have a dog named Clarabelle. She's a sheepadoodle. I live in upstate South Carolina, and I am the host of the Hope and Help podcast with the Institute for Biblical Counseling Disciple and Discipleship, as well as a certified biblical counselor through ACBC. 
Well, thanks so much for being back with us on the on the episode. I know we've had a number of conversations, and I didn't want to overstate uh, them or anything, but I'm super thankful to have you back. And we're here today to talk about uh, your newest book, because uh, you've published a couple now. Congratulations, um, and congratulations <laughs> on 20 years of marriage. That's a bit, that's a big thing. Don't want to overlook that. But your newest book is called Midnight Mercies, Walking with God Through Depression in Motherhood. And I'm super thankful for this book to be out and in the hands of a lot of people. Uh, my wife endorsed your book, so um, I should have had her interview you. It would have been more fun. <laughs> but I'm, th- I'm thankful to, to have you on and to have you have the chance to share your book. So tell, tell our audience, where did this book come from? Like, why this book now? Yeah. Well, it's actually a, a book that's been in the making in terms of the idea of it since the end of 2019. And I signed the contract in 2020, in the middle of 2020, and then just now it's coming out. So it has been a long and arduous process full of tears, not a, not not blood, but a lot of tears and sweat um, to try to get to this point. But uh, just brainstorming with the publisher, uh, PNR Publishing, who is uh, putting this book out and trying to think of how I might best steward my own personal story, which is something that has always been very important to me to to share and pretty much testify to God's love and mercy and goodness to me and all of my ups and downs of life. And so uh, trying to think of how we might package that in a way that would be uh, most helpful to the body of Christ and to serve, you know, women who are in need. And so between the publisher and I, we came up with the idea of writing a resource that would be specific to the experience of depression and motherhood. And so, uh, and then over the years, that idea continued to evolve to take the shape that it is in today, which I'm very thankful for. So, it's a very particular focus. So, what what were are some of the attributes about motherhood specifically that you wanted to address? Uh, in in because there there are other books out there on depression, but you're focusing in on some particularities and specifics of motherhood. So. Why? What are, yeah. what are those things? Well, I think for me, what was really important, because I have benefited greatly from all of the biblical counseling books on depression, and I, I reference them often in, in Midnight Mercies, you know, but I, I found that what I wasn't getting was a female voice hmm. into the experience of uh, 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 the voice of a mother who knows what it is to feel like she's not capable of carrying all of the weight of her family and the burdens and the conflicts and the disappointments and the hurts and the griefs hmm. and the overwhelm. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. Yeah. And so, you know, wanting to uh, help articulate the, the, emotional overwhelm that today's moms are are facing and we see in the news reports i mean i'm watching them pretty closely and constantly seeing major reporting agencies that are raising you know raising the alarm as to how desperate today's moms are are you know mm. with the different pressures that they face and it's not so much that things are changing in in the role of motherhood itself but just the context and we exist that we exist in today socially and culturally with social media and and all these things you know i just felt really led to want to equip moms number one 
uh, with a language to express what it is that they are going through. And so the book Midnight Mercies in every single chapter, not only does it follow along, you know, my own story of my week-long um, hospitalization in, in the psychiatric hospital, but also too, we see these vignettes of other moms that are based off of real characters. So they're composite, you know, figures, yeah, but yeah. we're we're taking a peek into what is what are these struggles look like in everyday motherhood. And so while it's not a book about how to be a better mom or really a book about motherhood, uh, to per se, it's really a book about that uh, that seeks to give moms a language to their experience of despair, to know that they're not alone, that the Bible does speak to these issues, and that we can find hope and help through uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yeah, no, I really appreciate I appreciate that, and I want to ask a couple of questions related to personal experience. One is that I really commend you for sharing your own personal experience through this because. It is just the reality that when people say, here's what I've been through, it is such a blessing to people. Uh, I think all of us can testify to, to having fears, having worries, having struggles and experiences. And when we find out that we're not alone, that somebody else has been there, um, it's a huge relief, <laughs> you know, and it's a huge source of encouragement and hope and, and everything like that. Um, is that... Is that part of why you shared your own experience or like t- tell me how that element comes out in this book or what you're hoping to accomplish yeah. through that aspect? Yeah. Well, well, you're, what you just said really picks on a, up on a quote that I recently read from Charles Spurgeon, who says that the, uh, the sorrows of one saint are lessons to others. Mm. And I think that we see that all throughout the scriptures. I mean, that is what the scriptures are to us, right? I and mean, the lessons of the saints from the, you know, that great cloud of witnesses that we see here in, in the scriptures and the narratives, they are lessons to us to guide us through all of the ups and downs of life. And so, you know, for me, when I think of my ministry, street calling, I, I really feel like the foundation of all of what I'm called to do is really found in 2 Corinthians 1, where we talk about, you know, the fact that we comfort others with the comfort that God has comforted us with, so that those who are in any or all kinds of afflictions can experience a similar comfort. And so, that really is what, what drives me to share about the depths that I have descended to. And the more that I hear people uh, discovering I do that, then sometimes I think, Think, oh, maybe I shouldn't have because everyone seems like they're saying, you know, that they're they're surprised by that. But I don't, I mean, even if Jesus was willing to be weak in the Garden of Gethsemane in front of his friends for their benefit, right? I mean, he bled, he he was so, you know, and had so much inner turmoil, he he had drops of blood mm. pouring down and he was pleading with God to let the cup pass from him. I mean, he let his friends see him in that condition. Mm. And so like we have our great high priest who has modeled for us vulnerability, mm. you know, before others for their sake, you know, it was for the disciples sake that they saw him struggle that way. And for our sake, even all these years, these generations later to know um, you know, that even our Savior was weak and struggled and invited people into his journey. And so, uh, that's something that I do in this book is to share that experience, you know, but for the purpose of hopefully helping women to more clearly see God's mercy toward them in the midst of a season where it really doesn't feel like he's all that merciful. Yeah, and it's super it's super helpful. And I love that you pointed to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. I go there all the time with my students, with my counselees and others, because Paul goes on to say, like, he doesn't just say, 
be share the comfort that you've given been given in your hardship. He goes on to talk about the hardship that he he mm-hmm. and his his companions have gone through, like that they even had the 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 sentence of death in them in those moments, and there he he displays what he's just taught. Right, he doesn't just say share your comfort in your affliction uh, that God has given you in your affliction. He says, and oh by the way, here are some of my afflictions too, so that you can understand yeah. uh, what what I'm going through and what you've been through. On the, on then, the or go ahead. But then Curtis, but then Curtis, he also goes on to even say, okay, so yes, we, you know, I've been afflicted, and here's the comfort I've received, and hey, here's what this discomfort and this, you know, despairing of life itself, you know, really was about. But then he goes on to reveal the purpose, or yep. at least a purpose, a redemptive benefit, which was, hey, he didn't know everything what God was doing in that moment, but he knew that God was teaching him to not rely on himself, but to rely on the God who raises the dead, yep. you know, and so I continue to fall back on that. And I think even through all throughout Midnight Mercies, continue to try to push that as what we can know because there is so much in depression and motherhood that we can't know right but we want to be faithful to what we can know while entrusting god with what we can't so the the flip side of the experience coin for me is right now with the with the prevalence of social media one of the things that i've seen is so many people just airing their suffering on social media uh, or like just commiserating, basically, um, co, just being out there and 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 sharing all their blah with one another. And I think there's a temptation or a, a common thing where moms in who are struggling as moms just get on and and that's all it is is commiseration. It's like oh, it's hard for you, it's hard for me, but there's nothing pointing them. There's there's nothing that they're pointing each other to. Does that make sense? You, am I I know I'm babbling here a little bit. No, Sorry. No, 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 it makes sense. But you're what I want is I want people to to get wisdom, if, instead of just commiseration, right? Mm-hmm. In your book, like you're offering that, and that's one of the things that's very different. So how is your how is what is in Midnight Mercies different than what a uh, 24-year-old, 25-year-old mom who's struggling in the midst of it and jumping online and just sharing with her friends how hard it is, what is she going to get from your book that she's not going to get online from most of mm-hmm. her friends? Yeah, well, well, even as you're talking, I'm still thinking of 2 Corinthians uh, 1 and when you know, Paul uses that term, the fact that God comforts us with the comfort. He's using that comfort word as a verb and a noun, you know, so we have this action of holy urging is really kind of what that 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 verb means is that we're, we're, uh, you know, we're urging someone else to take heart in a particular comfort. And of course, our noun, the comfort that we have is, you know, our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, uh, there's this holy urging to, to look to Christ in the midst of our affliction. And that's definitely what I try to do in every single chapter of Midnight Mercies. However, Curtis, we don't rush there. Mm. And that, is something that's very important to me uh, and that was really difficult to achieve in this book because there can be the tendency even on those online posts that you're talking about social media posts where people may see a mom post her distress but then offer a kind of a reflexive trite response Mm. in an in a well-meaning attempt to be encouraging Um, and so we don't want to do that but we also don't want to be stuck in complaint or commiserating where we're not ever taking that 
next step toward taking heart in our ultimate comfort, which is in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so through every chapter in Midnight Mercies, we spend a lot of time uh, articulating what it feels like to be hopeless, weary, sad, angry, anxious, ashamed and lonely in depression. And I think it's really important to remember that before we escort people to the the, the father's promises that we help to connect them to the pains of the son, right? We want to yeah. connect with Christ's pains before escorting to people uh people to God's promises. And I think that's that's kind of my approach in this particular book is is not to commiserate, you know, but is to empathize with how hard it really is to go through life, even as a believer. And I would even say, Curtis, especially as a believer, because we know that the the path that we are called to is narrow and hard, right? If it was wide and easy, then we know we're on the path that leads to destruction, like Jesus says. Um, but we will face hardships and affliction in, in, um, in life as Christian moms. And so I try to be honest about that reality, not bypass it or overlook it or hurry people past it, but then ultimately, you know, land on on uh, Christ's pain, which, of course, through the cross, takes us to um, to the glorious and precious promises that we have through his resurrection. Yeah, yeah. As one of our colleagues put it, uh, we don't want to rush people to Romans 8.28 until we've let them soak in Romans 8.26, it's just that there are times where we are experiencing suffering too deep for words. We need to let let people experience that and experience the Spirit's intervention on our behalf and other things before we just try to rush um, in a, where we make a profound reality a platitude uh, by just rushing there too quickly. No, I appreciate that. And you mentioned already the chapters, you have eight chapters and each one up until the last is focused on those different experiences that you mentioned, hopelessness, weariness, sadness, anger, anxiety, and shame, and loneliness. Um, with, I, I want you to give people a, a, a teaser in a sense of what the book is like without just telling the whole book. So mm-hmm. one of those chapters, pick one chapter and kind of express how you structure each chapter. You already mentioned a little bit like talking about the issue, but then pointing to hopefully mm-hmm. biblical hope in the midst of it. Mm-hmm. Which is which was your favorite chapter? And tell us a little bit about it. My favorite, gosh, Curtis, that's a hard question. <laughs> I'm not here to <laughs> well, give softballs. Curtis, <laughs> who is your favorite child? Let me ask you that. So, well, that's a very different question. <laughs> no, but, um, but in all seriousness, I think that I would... Gosh, that's hard. Well, let me, um, I'll just ask you about one that I thought was intriguing. Okay. The loneliness, okay. a, pa- a painful paradox, right? Okay. Like mm-hmm. you're, you're a mom, so there's people in your life. They're with you, but you feel mm-hmm. alone. Like why, why mm-hmm. is that? What, and I love the, the kind of subtitle of the chapter, a painful paradox. How is mm-hmm. the, the experience of loneliness for moms? Why is that so significant? Well, it, the chapter really is specific to the experience of loneliness in depression. Mm -hmm. And I think that there are some particular facets to that, that are unique to depression 
uh, that not everyone who's lonely will experience. And so a depressed mom, you know, may feel as though, I mean, look, the reality is, is that if you're a depressed mom, it may be that your house is full Mm -hmm. or, you know, you may be lonely because now you have an empty nest, Mm -hmm. you know, so it's not necessarily loneliness is dependent upon the presence or lack thereof of other people, right? There are so much more to it than that, this sense of of disconnectivity. And, and sometimes, you know, it's because we've experienced a loss, that there's a relationship that we've lost or some sort of hope has been dashed. And, you know, there are a lot of different reasons why we may feel disconnected from meaningful relationship or, or the, at least the relationship that we had. Uh, but I think specifically in the experience of depression, Uh, It's a painful paradox because in one sense, you know, we may feel like people who we let into this journey with us will either misunderstand or mishandle us in our pain, Mm -hmm. which is often, I mean, I've experienced that. So I know how hard it is to take that risk and be vulnerable, to try your best to explain what this darkness is like. And for someone to just answer you back with a very insensitive remark, like cry me a river or get Mm -hmm. your act together or something else that's completely just deflating. It's, it's defeating to hear that in response. And so because of that, we may harden ourselves as a means of protection, you know, not share and actually push people away from uh, entering into our pain and to our experience when all we want at the same time is for someone to come close and hold us. Mm. And so you have this sense of, I can't let anybody in because I'll get hurt. But all I want is for somebody just to hold me. <laughs> it's, a, mm. it's a very miserable place to be. Uh, and that's why I call it a particular painful paradox. And we see that dynamic in the story of Naomi. Mm. And so every chapter in Midnight Mercies, I'm going through these different emotional experiences that are common to depression. We go into the biblical narratives and I find characters, you know, from the great cloud of witness witnesses who say similar words that we do when we're feeling despondent mm-hmm. because from the heart the mouth speaks so if we can connect ourselves and locate our stories in the scriptures based on the words that we're saying and we can see that there are others who have experienced very similar emotional um, turmoil and doubts and questions and fears, then we can begin to observe how does God interact with this person in this place and time, and how might that be an encouragement to me? And so, um, that's where we go in the chapter on loneliness is connecting with Naomi and the fact that, you know, Naomi got to a point in her story where she basically said, why bother? You know, she had people, she had her daughters-in-law who were trying to go with her on this journey as she was a widow. And she's like, look, I'm bereft and bankrupt. I have nothing good left to give. You know, she didn't have a son. They could remarry or anything like that. And she fell into that why bother trap. Uh, again, it's something that may be a unique part of the experience of loneliness and depression where we are pushing people away because we're like, you know, I've got a problem and you can't fix it. There's no point in even trying anymore. And so I won't give you any more away, but that's that's kind of gives a little bit of an insight as to how I engage these these difficult thoughts and and feelings. No, that's really helpful. And I think that I hope our listeners are hooked by that, both to see how you're approaching each of these issues and the care that you're taking and and how you're grounding it in scripture and drawing people to connect to God through his word, 
through the stories of his people. And that's really, really powerful. And that, that it is a complex thing and a, a paradoxical thing um, in one sense, especially with loneliness. And we think about, I mean, honestly, I think isolation is one of the lies that the enemy tries to get us to believe that we need to be alone. Either we're, nobody else will understand, nobody else um, has done what we've done, been where we've been, etc. We constantly want to push away, but as you're saying, there's a paradox to it where we want, we do know we want relationship and connection. Um, and it is hard when well-meaning Christians inadvertently bolster that lie. Um, so do you, I know your book is written primarily to the care, the person who needs care, but would you recommend like caregivers or family members of some, a mom who's in the, who's struggling with depression, read it as well so they can better understand her, her and her experience? Well, absolutely. Because I tried really, really hard to give the sufferer words that she may not be able to find on her own to articulate the complex, nuanced, emotional, you know, challenges, difficulties that she's facing. Because that was one of the hardest things for me as I was going through uh, my own past experiences of depression, which is why also the Psalms were such a comfort to me during that time, because I feel like they gave words to a kind of misery that I couldn't articulate, but I was feeling. And so I'm hopeful that Midnight Mercies will become a tool similarly so that, you know, even a mom who just read it can say, look, I don't know how to tell you how it is I'm feeling right now, but you can read this book and better, you know, understand why I'm feeling so weary or why I'm really wrestling with with this grief and sadness or why I'm feeling angry, you know, and actually anger continues to be the topic that in my conversations I have with people that seems to be the most surprising element of depression which is why I almost said it was my favorite chapter. <laughs> and it was also, Curtis, the chapter that took me the longest and the most rewrites to get through, which is why it's kind of funny. I would say it's my favorite now. But I think it's because um, because there is anger, you know, that is oftentimes a response to the hurt or the heartbreak or people misunderstanding or all these, you know, various challenges that we're facing. And so I think for a caregiver to go through, especially a biblical counselor, and here, let me just say this one more thing. Um, I think it's very important, and I would advocate here for, for biblical counselors to explore the narratives that I, I have in this particular book for the purposes of being to use those narratives to connect their counselees to the scriptures in a meaningful way that does not uh, diminish the pain of their experience, does not condemn them for the confusion that they feel. But now all of a sudden, as we connect people with the narratives that articulate their particular experiences that the people can connect to, they, they find themselves in that story. They say, yes, me too. Just like you were talking about, here's a fellow saint who has experienced this sorrow. This person knows what this is like. And so if we can connect people with that pain, 
then it's a lot more genuine when we get to the point in our conversation where we are trying to encourage them to connect with the promise. I think the trouble is, is that like you said, and like we talked about earlier, we're not taking that time and being Mm. patient, which we see God being mercifully patient through each and every one of these narratives that I highlight in the book. We want to model our care after the father's care and he doesn't jump from affliction to resurrection, right? I mean, there's this process that he's doing in the lives of his despondent children, and he doesn't rush them through that. And so as counselors, I think it's just really important uh, to be able to connect to narratives in that way, because it gives our the sufferer, the counselee, a perspective uh, on their story that they might not otherwise be able to to connect to. Yeah, no, that's that's really helpful. It is It is good, especially maybe for people who can't uh, directly, you know, they haven't experienced depression themselves to be able to read about somebody else's experience and, and hopefully build compassion in the heart, right? Like that's, that is the goal. We want to weep with those who weep, to enter into their suffering in a way where we can say, I'm feeling in a sense, not exactly what you're feeling, but I am going to weep with you and come alongside. Man, what I was just reminded while you were talking about a verse that we say so often, 1 Thessalonians 5.14, um, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with all. And then I think about how quick we are to throw out, you know, snippets mm-hmm. and yeah. you know, tweet-size solutions to everybody's problems. Uh, one, trying to resolve it in such a, a short statement, and two, doing it that so quickly without being patient and listening and learning and hearing and understanding. So, no, thank you for that that encouragement. The last chapter in your book, though, is hope. And that, you're offering hope all the way through. How come you took an extra measure uh, of an entire extra chapter to talk about hope? Yeah, well, it's the conclusion of my the story, at least the portion of the story I'm sharing as I, as we lightly track along the week I spent in the mental hospital. Um, and so we like to call, you know, if we had to summarize this book, we, we, meaning me and the publisher call it an empathetic journey from hopelessness to hope, mm. because that's, that's the reality of when you're walking through depression, you, you you start in this pit of hopelessness, this pit of despair. Uh, but God's promise is always, you know, I will bring light to, uh, the darkness before you, I will make the roughs pass and paths into level ground. And so we always see him doing that redemptive work in the life of a believer at different times, of course, uh, but we always land back on hope. And that's the reality. If you're in Christ, your story never ends in hopelessness. It always has to end in light and life and hope, at least on this side of heaven until our, our faith is made sight and then there's no more need for hope. And so, uh, but the call to keep going, that last chapter is really kind of Uh, the climax of my story where, you know, all throughout we see, because, you know, through the scriptures, we have the perspective of how God worked in Moses' story and Elijah's story and Martha and Mary's story and Job's story and Gideon's story and the bleeding woman's story and even Naomi's story. We have the perspective. So, we kind of know, okay, there's a start, a middle and an end, right? But 
what about for Christine? You know, and what about for you as the reader? Our stories are still in progress. And so for me, sharing my story here and landing at the end of hope, uh, I share in this whole chapter for the most part, when God and his mercy met me in the mental hospital in a completely unexpected and fresh way. And it was really at the point where I had given up on even searching for him anymore. Mm. And it sounds, I, I don't, I hate to say it so bluntly like that, Curtis, but you know, for someone who's going through depression uh, and you, you know, oh, ask God for help. Ask God, like they've asked, Yeah. you know, like they're <laughs> pleading, they're begging, yeah. they're begging to be delivered from the darkness out there and they can't figure out how to do it themselves. They know God says he's our ever present help in times of trouble, but it's like, you know, I've been asking and asking and asking and asking and asking and nothing's changing. You know, so there's this discouragement that happens. And that's where I was in this chapter, at least the start of the chapter on hope is greatly discouraged and just looking for signs of life in God's word. I wasn't looking for comfort. I wasn't looking for counsel. I just wanted to know this book was alive like it used to be to me mm. because it had felt so dead for so many weeks. And so I'm not going to give uh, the scene away that I share in this particular chapter, but I will say that um, God was just so merciful to meet me there in my my moment of pure desperation and i can't help but testify to that you just can't yeah you just absolutely cannot keep something like that secret and so that's what i share in that chapter and i hope it's an encouragement to the readers and you have a you have an appendix there too where you you i mean and i appreciate just the honesty and the transparency and that's i mean you apologize but we <laughs> definitely don't need to cuz that's part of the reason you're putting this book out there is because you want people to see the the hope and the comfort that the God of all comforts gave you in the midst of your affliction. So they will be comforted in the midst of their affliction. Uh, and you don't, you don't hold back, you don't pull punches, and you have an appendix as well in the book that talks about when grief becomes dangerous and what to do about it. Uh, can you Tell our audience a little bit, like why you wanted to include that chat, that mm -hmm. appendix, and yeah. uh, what they can expect to find there. Yeah, and that was actually uh, originated off of a request I got from Risen Motherhood to uh, write an article about when a grieving mother could know when her grief has turned into depression. Mm. And I was like, okay, that's not a, that's kind of, that was a challenge. It was a challenging because there's so many different things that you could say. And it's not always clear uh, that the line between grief and depression yeah. can be murky sometimes. Yep. And you don't want to stigmatize someone's genuine grief experience by saying, oh, you're doing it wrong. You know, you should only be grieving for X amount of time. And if you're still grieving, that means you're doing it wrong or something's wrong with you. So I didn't want to come and approach it in that way. And so instead, what I did was really pick out the danger element in depression, which I think is what makes it distinct from, in, for the most part, I'm not going to speak in absolutes, but from what I found in my own experience and in counseling others, what makes it distinct from you know, grief that somebody is working through, even if it's prolonged, uh, doesn't mean that it's a dangerous kind of sadness to the point where somebody is at risk of harming themselves or or others or, or what have you. And uh, so in that particular appendix, I try to contrast the difference between what I would say the Bible teaches as a safe sadness or a normal sadness. And, uh, you know, I've been helped a lot 
through uh, the writing of Dr. Charles Hodges and his book, Good Mood, Bad Mood. It talks a lot about normal sadness. And a lot of times, you know, the reality in depression is that diagnoses are being given for people who whose losses are explainable or identifiable. Um, you know, that's not always the case in depression, but oftentimes it is. And so there can be a safe kind of sadness for the believer where our sadness is serving as a productive emotion that presses us towards Christ. We are taking a refuge in the Lord. Uh, yes, it's painful. It hurts. We have fears and doubts and questions, but ultimately we are able to take those things to the Lord, do business with him in whatever way we need to. And in that way, our sadness is safe, mm. right? But then there's this sense in depression where Jesus doesn't seem like a real and present refuge for whatever reason it might be. And those reasons are all different for everyone, right? I mean, there it could be I don't even want to begin to try to attempt to suggest why someone would feel like Jesus was not a real and present refuge for them. But I know from my experience, I felt that way after a long time of of asking for help and seeming to not get any. And so the thing in depression that can make the danger uh, or the sadness that's experienced dangerous is when he doesn't feel like a real and present refuge in the midst of that uh, inner angst. We will be tempted and be weak in that temptation oftentimes uh, to find our refuge in other things. Mm -hmm. For me, it was alcohol and self-harm. For your listeners, it could be, you know, pornography, food, shopping, sleep even. I've seen sleep used as a refuge, as, you know, a means of escape from life. You know, and all of those false refuges that we turn to when Jesus is not, we don't sense him as a real and present refuge is dangerous for us. Mm. You know, it, it doesn't, it doesn't, it, it, we continue to spiral downward instead of being reoriented to, to where we're safe, which is in the presence of Christ. And so that's really where I kind of work out um, the difference there. And I think the distinction is important to recognize because if you are working with someone who is continuing to kind of, communicate in not so many words that Jesus is not a real and present refuge for them. They can't sense him and they're not going to him. They're turning to other refuges. Then you know that, okay, there's a risk that this person may be making unwise choices, harmful choices, uh, and even possibly, um, you know, teetering on the the point of self-harm or suicidal thinking. Yeah, no, I appreciate that the way you broke it down and, and very thoughtful to recognize that there's a nuance there that it's not just normal sadness or suicidality. But there's a long trail and a lot of other options in between there that are that are also dangerous, that are also mm-hmm. unhelpful. And yeah, that's super helpful. I, it we we all if we've been around people for any amount of time, especially in the church, we have seen or heard that question of how long is too long to grieve? Um, when is enough enough kind of thing? And I mean, I was just recently at a conference and had that question come up in the Q&A and it's like, it's going to be different for everybody. And kind of what you did there, I just said, if the person is talking to God and going to God, kind of doesn't matter how long it is, as long as they're moving that direction. That's what Psalm 88, I think, so well depicts for us. Um, so I really appreciate that appendix and, and how you how you handle that and how you explained it there. So thanks. But our our time is up. But I was we went a little over. But I was glad to glad to hear it. So um, any final thoughts, encouragements to moms or others who want to help moms who are struggling? 
Um, my encouragement to those who want to help moms who are struggling. Oh, I think I would say uh, that sometimes the ministry of presence is just so powerful. Uh, you know, even if all you know how to do in your discipleship of a mom is to come over to her house and do her dishes and vacuum the floor. I mean, sometimes we, uh, you know, can over-spiritualize the help that we as, as Christians want to offer to others. And that's not necessarily wrong, right? But moms need naps, moms need hands-on help, you know, car line rides and, you know, and, and relief in other ways ways that are just practical. And so don't overlook that necessity of the fact that, you know, we we love one another by serving one another's needs, not just by offering comfort and counsel through the scriptures, but by the hands-on ministry, you know, and then in cases where we're not able to do that because we're perhaps in a more formal counseling context, then as a counselor, you know, one of the first things that I do is make sure, does this mom have a support system? You know, does she have people in the local church that she can be vulnerable with or people that she can re reach out to on those days where she she's feeling like she's having a meltdown moment and she just wants to throw her hands up in the air and give up? And so I could be super spiritual here at the end, but I guess uh, just to point out those two kind of practical things, I think would be helpful because we may think that they're not as important as the, the super spiritual, um, but I think that they are. And especially for moms who are are trying to wear multiple hats, um, you know, that practical help and, and and support system is very important. Yeah, I think I think I read somewhere, you know, that we shouldn't say go be warmed and be filled and not give somebody a jacket and a meal. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think that that's mm -hmm. somewhere. Well, Christine, yeah. thanks so much for writing this book and sharing so much of your your life with uh, the readers who will read it. And I really encourage our audience definitely go check out this book, uh, get it for people in your in your life who could use it, or will have others in their lives who could use it. So, uh, thanks so much for being with us on fifteen fourteen today. Thanks, Curtis. Thanks for listening. Make sure to follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And special thanks to our team who helped make this podcast possible. My assistant, Rebecca Mullins, helps coordinate these interviews. And our podcast engineer, Caleb Lau, does a great job editing and putting everything together. We look forward to you joining us next time. <laughs>